You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, January 28th, 2021. I'm Ed Harrison. I'm going to be joined shortly by Dave Floyd, who is the CEO and founder of Aspen Trading Group. Before I talk to Dave, let's kick it on over to Jack Farley, who's going to talk to us about the news of the day. Thanks, Ed. The jet engine in GameStop shares hit a speed bump today as retail brokerages like E-Trade, Schwab, Tastyworks, and most notoriously Robinhood banned users from buying the stock. Now, Robinhood went even further, closing out long positions without the consent of the owner, setting, quote, unreasonable risk in brokering the position. Now, these actions have stoked the anger of the Wall Street Bets community, and that anger has spread uh, throughout society to the extent that uh, two politicians Ted Cruz and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez on the opposite side of the aisle pretty much have said the exact same thing, that what Robin Hood did is suspect and uh, it should be looked into. And that is exactly what the Southern District Court of New York look, appears to be doing. They have a class action complaint against Robin Hood, which they just filed just about an hour ago. But I want to get away from all of that drama and focus on the facts. What caused this bubble to get so big? And what will cause it to pop? And I say will pop rather than probably will. Uh, Not only because the market value of the company is so far gone from the fundamental value of the business, but also for some market structure reasons that I'll get into going forward. So what caused the bubble to get so big? Number one, uh, a short squeeze. When you short something, you sell something that you don't own. You expect that you want the value of that underlying security to decrease. When it does, you make money. But when that doesn't happen, when the stock increases in value, you lose money and your broker uh, asks you to post additional collateral or to close the position. And when when short sellers close the position at the same time, they buy back their stock. And in so doing, that uh, drives up the price. Now, the short interest on GameStop was notable, totaling at times 140%, meaning that there were more shares sold short than were floating in the open marketplace. And if that sounds like dry kindling, you're correct. But I think that what really got this rally going was the gamma squeeze and the action in the options markets, the derivatives markets. Because you see, often there are there are short squeezes, but it's hedge funds going after other hedge funds, and it requires billions of dollars to, to squeeze the shorts. So if an individual wants to cause a short squeeze or a hedge fund wants to cause a short squeeze, they generally need over a billion dollars. But the folks, the traders at Wall Street Bets, they didn't have a billion dollars. What they did is they banded together and they made extremely leveraged bets in the derivatives markets um, that forced the issuers of those derivatives to buy back the stock. So they basically made the market makers do their own bidding. And I want to go to a great chart from uh, uh, Weston Nakamura from the exchange which shows exactly that. Last Friday on the 22nd, the highest listed option was $60. And the, the uh, price went over that. So on Monday, they issued the, the ex, uh, exchanges and the market makers issued new options. 
at $115. And they they bought that option. And that's why uh, you can actually see this, that on Monday, the most active option uh, for the, all of GameStop was the January 29th, 115 calls. And that was the most traded for GameStop. It was the second most traded option in the entire market. And that's something I talked about with, with uh, Ed on Monday. So that's what's called the gamma ramping. You force the dealers to buy back their stock because you buy such leverage call options, which they're never going to happen. But once the stock reaches that limit, they have to buy in droves. And that's why we saw the remarkable price appreciation. Well, what are we seeing now? I'm seeing some very different things. Let's look at the most active options uh, for GME right now. The three most active contracts are puts. That is, they make money when they sell. So they're, they're short contracts, short on GME. And what are the strike prices for that? Are they, oh, 20, you expect it to go? No, they're one, they're 50 cents. So what I think is happening and what some traders told me think is happening is that when uh, hedge funds close their shorts, they went long puts instead because they don't have that unlimited downside that a naked short has. Uh, so I've just got some great charts here. These, uh, this shows um, the open interest of the options uh, that expire tomorrow uh, on Friday. Note how uh, most of them are in the money and these sort of crazy out of the money, 250% money in this calls, they're not, they're, there's no real interest for that. And it's the same with options for uh, February 21st. Now, I will say that the uh, extreme manipulation of Robinhood and the other retail brokers, wh whatever you want to call it, definitely plays a role. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether the game is fair or whether the game is unfair. I'm just trying to see what's going to happen. And I'm just looking at the market structure. So those are the two forces which, if you've been following this story a little bit, you probably have heard of. But there's a third force, and it's something that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the role of passive vehicles. And this is something that Mike Green talks about a lot. Uh, GameStop is not part of the S&P 500. It's not part of the NASDAQ, but it is part of the Russell 2000. And a few months ago, it was, it was nowhere near uh, a big player in the index. It was 0.02% of the index. Briefly today, it was the biggest stock in the index. It was, I went from about 0.02 as of a few months ago to 0.02%. And as GameStop commanded a bigger and bigger presence within the index, it forced passive funds like BlackRock to buy more. Because if GameStop increases in price and you, you don't buy more and you just have the Russell 2000, effectively you're net short GameStop. And that is something that we've learned you don't want to do. So what do these three forces have in common? Forced buying. The short sellers had to buy back their stock in order to cover their short position. The market makers in the options markets, they had to buy the underlying GME uh, in order to hedge their delta as the price went up. And, and then as the price went up, they had to hedge it more and more exponentially. And then third, and this is you know, slightly more of a niche point, uh, uh, you know, less established fact, is that the indexes had to buy the stock back as, they, as it went up. So what do these three forces have in common? Forced buying. And what happened today? Forced selling. That's exactly what happened as accounts of uh, retail traders were closed out as retail brokerage says, oh, we, we can't handle the exposure anymore. It's too risky. The, the spreads are too wide. It's just too vast. We can't do it. It's too risky. So we're going from forced buying to forced selling. So I think that could be a harbinger of what is to come. Now to Ed and Dave Floyd. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. And welcome, Dave. Hey, Ed, good to see you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's good, it's good to talk to you. And, uh, you know, what an interesting time we're living because, you know, I was just telling you right before we came on, it's up to you. I was giving you the option of whether or not we should talk at all about any of this GameStop and Reddit stuff. And uh, you said that, yeah, actually, it might make a good start to the conversation because that's actually where people's headspace is right now. I know we have a lot of other stuff to talk about, but um, w- let me start it out here, Dave. Uh, when, uh, we had a philosophical conversation in the content crew here at uh, Real Vision uh, and I mentioned in that conversation that, you know, when I whenever there's a big lottery, uh, I go down to the uh, to get my ticket and I get a ticket knowing that my chance is like one in 300 million to uh, to buy and, and or to to win the lottery. And there's always someone there who's like, you know, buying 400 tickets at, at, at one time. And I always wanted to say to the guy, you know, you realize that your chance just went up from one and three hundred million to one and uh, or to four hundred and three hundred million. And the thing is, is that, you know, no one is banning that guy from spending his his whole paycheck on the lottery. But yet today, as you and I speak, people are being banned from uh, investing in GameStop and similar uh, companies like that. Yeah, it is quite bizarre. I mean, just as a little bit of a side note, but here in Oregon, you know, like everywhere else in the country, you know, we've had our COVID lockdowns. Well, they're starting to lift them a little bit. And one of the first things they did here in terms of restaurants and bars is you can go into the bar or restaurant and play video lottery, but you can't go in and have socially distanced seating. You know, the, you know, the logic on some of this stuff makes absolutely no sense. And your your analogy there about the lottery is a perfect example. I mean, why should why should we be regulated on what we can do with our capital? Um, and preventing somebody from buying stocks seems really quite ludicrous. Just as it's ludicrous to say you can't short stocks, let the market sort it out. And you know, as, as I said to you, nothing preventing me from pulling my money out of my retirement and going to the casino with it. But yet I can't trade futures in my four hundred one k. You know, I find it really unfair. But that gets a little bit off the topic. But I mean. This definitely cuts to the core of what's happening, you know, socially. Uh, there was a great article on Bloomberg yesterday by John Authors, and uh, you might agree with it, you might disagree with it, but he kind of tapped into kind of the anger of the millennial generation towards seeing what's happened with big business, specifically the banks and investment banks, getting the bailouts, no penalties, and they're kind of like, you know what, that is blatantly unfair, and it's almost like this is their middle finger to that whole systematic, you know, oppression, whatever they want to call it. And, you know, good for them. They've managed to make some money. I think that's wonderful. I think what people need to be aware of, though, is it's not necessarily a repeatable, um, you know, uh, investing or, or trading approach. Case in point, the minute the broker says, you know, we're not trading those stocks anymore. Now you've got outside influence that you never factored in. So, you know, if people made money trading these things, hey, my hat's off to you. You know, I, I considered buying some of these, but in the back of my head, I was like, well, what if the regulators come in and say, okay, X, Y, and Z? And then I, I know I'd be sitting there holding the bag. So 
that's great. You make some free money or quick money, but um, ultimately my answer is not getting to the point of it here. Where we go with this, I don't know, but it, it brings up a very interesting debate. And obviously in the days and weeks to come, we'll get more clarity on that. Yeah, you know, uh, I have two ways I can go with this. Uh, uh, let me just say in the background, the second way is about the government bigfooting uh, uh, markets. I'm thinking about Bitcoin in particular. You know, yeah. you know that's that's out there in the background. But I, I want to talk to the thing that you were talking about about this anger because uh, literally just yesterday I was on. I, maybe I went on a bit of a rant. I was talking about the fourth uh, turning that this. Uh, I called it the, um, you know, the um, the Robin Hood revolt is a manifestation of this anger, which is specifically uh, much more virulent in the millennial population. Like you and I, we're a bit older than that. And mm -hmm. and we, you know, we saw what happened uh, and there was as much anger in our generation as anyone else's. But, you know, there were some good times in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s for us. The millennial generation, on the other hand, all they've seen is, you know, 9-11, uh, you know, a market crash right before that. They saw, you know, the 2008 great financial crisis. And who gets who gets off the hook in, in most of those cases? Uh, the people who caused the problem to begin with. Yeah, I think, though, what what I was reading here and there, and I didn't delve into this too much, but I'm keeping a, a, you know an eye on it is the anger seems to be you know, uh, directed at these hedge funds as if the hedge funds have done something wrong. And I, I think that anger is misplaced. I think the anger is more, should be more at the kind of government regulatory um, area, not at, not at some guy at uh, Citron Research or whoever the guy that put out the short on GameStop. He's just doing his analysis and saying, I think the stock is worth X. He's not being, you know, He's not uh, gaming the system, no pun intended. So I think the anger is is misplaced. I understand where it's coming from. I concur with what you're saying. But I think we should be clear that the regulators and maybe government officials are really more uh, to blame here than someone who's just trying to do their job and you know achieve alpha in their investment fund. Right. You know, uh, this is a little bit off out of your wheelhouse before we get into your wheelhouse. But yeah, that, that comment I made about the government bigfooting, um, Bitcoin. I mean, what we're seeing now is exactly what could happen when the government decides, wait a minute, you know what? Actually, we don't we consider Bitcoin less, uh, you know, investing and we consider it more gambling like the lottery. We're going to intercede and and, uh, and make sure that uh, you can't uh, get in that space in the way that you used to be able to. I, I agree. I think that's one of those things. Actually, I might, you know, take a punt on that and, you know, maybe buy puts on some sort of ETF that tracks Bitcoin, or I don't do anything in Bitcoin, you know, directly. But I agree. I think there is a regulatory risk there, wrong or right. You know, ultimately, the government's going to see it the way they want to see it. And if they see it one way, they're ultimately going to have their way. And that's just the reality, whether you like it or not. So, I mean, I've got my qualms about how the market's been, you know, handled over the last 10 to 15 years, this constant flow of money in the the Fed in there, you know, keeping the accelerator down. I think that's wrong. I think that's made the markets challenging in some level, although you could argue, hey, just buy and shut up and let them go up. But that's not the way I came out of the gate in terms of college and my work environment early on. It was all about price discovery and and whatnot. And so, if, so I've got my own sense of, you know, where the regulators have got it wrong. 
And unfortunately, they're still in charge. So you've got to live in that environment. And so living in that environment, what are you doing now? What's on your radar screen as we speak? Well, it's, you know, the usual host of things, you know, I trade the S&P futures, I trade 10-year note futures, and I trade a handful of currency pairs. And that's pretty much my wheelhouse. I think what's interesting now, I mean, rather than just going and saying, hey, I'm looking at these technical levels, et cetera, et cetera, which obviously can be useful. I do think what we were just talking about has bled over into the equity market at large. Um, I've seen some recent articles um, which show just obviously a huge number of call options being bought, record numbers, huge number of put options being sold to open, which is obviously problematic. Um, And I think that ultimately could have some sort of a, you know, uh, destabilizing effect on the market, because as we all know, without getting into too much of the minutia, if all these dealers are selling call options and taking the other side of these short put options, at some point they have to hedge and you create that feedback loop to the upside, but then that feedback loop can also unwind really, really rapidly to the downside. I thought we might have seen some of that yesterday when we broke below 3750, uh, reopened the afternoon session in the S&Ps down around 3720, but you know now we're back at 3819. So you know anything back below 3750 and that gamma, which is kind of what I'm talking about here, could actually start to play on itself and get market a little get the market a little bit more destabilized to the downside but that hasn't played out today it's been a pretty solid run higher up 2% right now yeah, very interesting comments because i i was talking to uh my colleague max Weathy about this yesterday because we saw similar activity in large cap tech in uh the summertime and you know what was happening there in terms of this gamma was that it was it was forcing uh, moves higher in, uh, in in shares that actually were moving the market overall. So, you know, here we are right now, and it's different than it was before, where we have these hedge funds who they, they're having to liquidate positions in order to get uh, for, you know, if they're in GameStop or, or AMC, GameStop or AMC, and uh, fund their short positions or the margin calls in their short positions with you know, Apple, Netflix, uh, you know, S&P, et cetera. Uh, so, I mean, are you seeing that activity? Did you see that activity occurring? Well, absolutely. Uh, again, you can only speculate, but if you try to connect the dots behind the scenes in terms of, you know, the way options have been traded and how much has been traded and whatnot, when we had, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, but we had about a, right when that story really started to break about, you know, the, the hedge fund, I don't know if it was Citron, was it Citron Research or was it the other... You know, is one of the other short, you know, operations, um, and they were attributing like the forty-point swoon in the S and P's to just that—a liquidation of a hedge fund because to cover the margin call. So, again, if we continue to ramp up these stocks, like I even saw today in American Airlines, um, and who knows what other stocks are going to start to go after? They buy all these call options, and you just create that feedback loop. At some point, you're going to create air pockets or destabilization areas. Um, you know, and it's kind of hard to know when they're going to happen. But you, but the mar- but by playing the game this way, they're leaving a very, very clear footprint of what they're doing and of what prices they're doing. And then you can start to connect the dots. You may not be able to predict when it will happen, but at some point, you've got to be ve- being very nimble in here as a trader. The good thing is there's a lot of volatility, so it's been a great trading week. Um, 
But for as an investor, you're probably looking at things going, Jesus, this is starting to get a little bit, you know, a little bit dicey in here. And, and it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's exactly the comment. The, you know, the question, therefore, is obviously where, where are the opportunities as a result of that? I mean, uh, clearly one is uh, long volatility. But uh, it, how much of an opportunity is that? Where are you seeing the opportunities for yourself? Well, the long volatility is a, is a tricky one. I mean, there was a really good friend of mine who I trade with on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, via Zoom, like a lot of us do nowadays, myself and one other colleague. We're always on the phone for the market opening, and we trade S&P futures and a few other things. And his, his uh, finding was really, really simple yesterday afternoon. Spikes above 30 in the VIX, just like anything in the VIX, you got to play the tails, you know, play the spikes. It's not a you know, a directional type investment. Um, spikes above 30 indicate that the market's going to rally for a little bit. It's going to be a little bit of mean reversion. What do we have today? Market's up just over 2%. So I don't know if I want to be long volatility, but maybe I might be long volatility if it gets back down, you know, if the VIX gets down, maybe back into the 20 area. I'd be playing for long volatility right now. Maybe yesterday afternoon, you play it from the short side. Not to say I do that type of stuff, but it does kind of, act as a reference point about how we might set up the following day in the S&P futures. And of course, how the S&P futures trade is going to impact what I do in currencies. To some degree, it'll affect what I do in rates. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, what I'm seeing right now, and again, I, my window has been kind of shrunk down because of the volatility. I'm not trying to forecast too far out, um, but I am seeing a persistent bid in the dollar. And I've been bullish on the dollar for the last month or so. And it's starting to kick into gear. We had record short positions in the dollar coming into the end of the year. It seemed like everybody and their uncle was a bear, but the dollar index wasn't going lower at the time. And that was kind of a, a good heads up for me. So I'm bullish the dollar. It's uh, it's off a little bit today. And I'm also looking for you know further strength in dollar yen. And if we get some further S&P weakness, which I believe is entirely possible, you could also translate that into short positions uh, through the Kiwi dollar. I find that a pretty good proxy for the S&P without the, you know, the violent intraday moves. Interesting. Now, uh, the dollar position, uh, are you looking at that in any sort of fundamental way, or is it because of the record short on the dollar that you have, uh, you know, you've been for the last month bullish in the dollar? Yeah, it's mainly from a positioning and sentiment standpoint. I'm thinking that if, you know, the dollar continues to triple, you know, trickle higher, um, you know, almost like you're getting in GameStop, you're going to get a lot of those short positions, which they may they may have been look or may have been liquidated at this point or severely scaled back. But I'm thinking that could feed on itself and we'll get the euro to shoot higher. Uh, sorry, euro to shoot lower. Kiwi dollar to move lower, dollar Swiss to move higher, and dollar yen to move higher. So yeah, uh, technically, and more from a positioning and sentiment, it's really hard for me to factor in fundamentals on the dollar because is it rates? Is it the S&Ps? Is it current account deficit? That's way above my pay grade. And that usually doesn't help me in the timeframes that I'm trading. You know, Technicals and actual price levels are where I find an edge. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
And this move that this uh, whole month period where you've been bullish on the dollar, how does that compare uh, from a uh, positioning, you know, length of position perspective where you're in, uh, you know, you're bullish uh, in one direction or you're bearish in one direction for a discrete period of time? So if I, if I understand what you're asking, Ed, is, is this situation, uh, am I in this trade long or this viewpoint longer than I've been in the past? Is that what you're asking? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My clients ask me this a lot because it, you know, I can have a view and I do, I have an inflection point in the dollar. That's kind of my bigger term view. And, you know, for me, you know, longer term might mean several months, which is very different than the way other people may look at that. They may see several months as relatively short term. I'm always operating from, you know, kind of a monthly, you know, two to three month theme overall. So this is kind of right in that. But, you know, these types of inflection points don't happen throughout the year very often. But then at the same time, you know, I can be dollar bearish on any given day, you know, for a couple of hours. I'll trade around that position. Right, right. So, you know, I'm kind of the equal opportunity guy. If the market's telling me they want to sell the dollars off, well, I'll be a buyer of the euro and, and vice versa. But my overall theme, like if you look at my two core positions, actually three, long dollar Swiss, long dollar yen and short Kiwi dollar, that's based on my view of the dollar. But on any given day, I'll be happy to trade around those positions as well. Right. And why this uh, Swissy yen and uh, the uh, Kiwi dollar uh, as uh, those are the trades that you are the crosses that you're looking at? Well, for me, um, dollar Swiss, I might end up re not regretting it, but it's just not moving as, as high uh, in lockstep uh, higher with the dollar index. But technically, I thought that looked pretty robust and usually tracks the dollar index very well. I could have made the same case for the euro because obviously that tracks the dollar index tick for tick on an inverse basis. Uh, dollar yen was really more a function of not only the technical uh, rationale for breaking out of kind of a downward trend channel, but there was some quantitative data behind that that suggested based on the way the Nikkei was trading, we could see 106, 107 on dollar yen. And then Kiwi dollar, quite frankly, that's kind of more of my wild card on the S&Ps. If the S&Ps get really squirrely to the downside, the Kiwi dollar is gonna get you know taken down almost in lockstep. So that's kind of my, you know, since you were talking about lotto tickets earlier, my Kiwi dollar is, you know, the lotto ticket. And it got hammered yesterday um, with the S&Ps. Of course, now it's right back up with the S&Ps today. But I am overall expecting more volatility in the S&Ps and some good pockets to the downside. So the Kiwi dollar should, um, you know, handle or track that move pretty well. Yeah. And why is it that the Kiwi dollar has that, uh, that ability? You know, just over time, it's been one of those currencies that is risk on, risk off. You know, it just kind of tracks what the, um, you know, it's a considered a commodity currency on some level, economic barometer, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, again, nothing more than just that, you know, historically attracts the S&Ps. And if the dollar index is moving up at the same time, then good. And I've got two, I got the wind at my back from two directions. Now, the one question I had on all of this is how do you express this? Uh, you know, options, futures, and also what time frames, what's the, the length of the contract that you're looking at? Um, nothing on options in terms of FX or the S&Ps. You know, the S&Ps, I trade futures um, because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck versus trading the ETF. Um, currency, I trade the spot markets, the biggest, most liquid in the world. So I can, not that I'm trading, you know, 
you know, billions of dollars worth of currency, but, you know, liquidity is never an issue in the spot market. It's usually not an issue in the futures market either, but I've just grown accustomed to being in the spot market. I've been there for 20 odd years and um, I, I like expressing those trades through there. The only time I usually do options is if I've got an equity idea, but those are few and far between. I, I kind of stick to the big macro driver asset classes. And when we uh, switch over to your third wheelhouse, which is uh, treasuries, mm -hmm. um, I was telling you as the lead up, the way I'm looking at it, because I'm looking at my screen now and I see that the U.S. 10 years up, you know, five basis points, which is a pretty big move. Uh, just for everyone who's watching, we're, we're taping this interday. Uh, we're just past two o'clock now, so it may be at a different level at the end of the day. But you know, it made a move uh, up to the 119 level at some point when people were really talking a lot about inflation. But then it got it hammered down and it started the day, you know, with a 101 handle. Uh, what are you seeing there as the opportunity? You know, oddly enough, I could be persuaded to be short notes here. Um, very simple reason. We had that big move down off the January highs and then we've rallied back up and it's in a relatively what I would consider corrective manner, and it stalled right at the 61.8% retracement of that move lower. Traded above it, like you noted, um, with that spike in um, spike lower in yields, but now it's right back below it. So that to me is kind of a failure. So I'm actually leaning bearish on 10-year notes. For the record, I don't have a position in them currently, um, but uh, I could easily see them trading lower because I think as long as we hold that 1% level on the, on the note or on the rates, um, I, I just think that could potentially feed on itself and, and see rates move higher for, for the reasons you noted above in terms of inflation and, uh, you know, potentially the economy getting a little bit better. But that's getting, again, beyond my forecasting and what I need to do for this. I'm just looking at it from a technical perspective. Right. And from a technical perspective, it seemed like the 10-year um, was trading in a range. Uh, it was, uh, you know, once it hit a certain range, it was off to the races. Uh, it's come back. And when you were talking about that 1% level, mm -hmm. is that the bottom of the of the new range that you're talking about? Or how are you looking at that level? Well, obviously, we get back below 136. That means uh, that means rates have shot quite up quite a bit higher. But we did have what you're referring to is we had that actually going all the way through 2020. It was actually a really it's a really, really choppy sideways range for 2020, but we started to break down a little bit here. We, we've had this rally here, but I think we still have a little bit more to go to the downside. So again, just from a technical perspective, I think that 2020 range kind of gave way to the downside. We've had a nice move up here, but I ultimately think it's going to fail. Right. Yeah. I, something to watch for me. I think uh, this retest potentially of breaking uh, yields breaking out to the upside is something for people to watch because potentially it could spill over into equities in some uh, fashion. Is that a, a play that you see as having any validity? Because in the past we've talked about, you know, the nexus of the dollar, the 10-year and equities, where the DCF, the discount rate, is getting to levels where people are starting to wonder, wait a minute, why am I paying 40 times earnings for this uh, this share? That That's exactly right. And again, the, even at the more, even a more basic way to look at that is, I'm not saying that some people aren't looking for higher rates, but by and large, that's not on a lot of people's radar screens right now. And I think if we do get a push higher in rates, 
that's going to be a, a larger move than what most people are thinking, meaning that treasuries, I think treasuries have a better chance of moving lower, faster, and to a greater degree than they do of moving higher at this point in time. And I'm probably stating the obvious here with rates at you know record lows. But to your point, yeah, you start getting that uh, 10-year rate up to one and a quarter, one and a half if it got up there. Suddenly, you have to look at equities and say, why am I in these again? And um, that's when things could get interesting. So I think 2021, it's got the makings of, of maybe uh, moving the, you know, shaking up the playing field a little bit. And uh, I was listening to a great podcast with um, one of the guys who was interviewed in um, the most recent uh, Jack Schwager book, The Unknown Market Wizards. And his name was Chris Carrillo. I mean, he had a very unorthodox approach and I won't need to go into it, but he says, I'm always, always, always looking for that next macro driver that's going to disrupt things. And he goes, maybe comes around once a year, twice a year, once every three years. He goes, but I'm always looking for him, trying to ask myself, if X, Y, and Z happens, what would be the knock-on effect? And then I express that with, you know, out-of-the-money options to kind of get the most mm -hmm. bang for the buck. So I think this kind of falls into that. If rates really get away from us, that's going to change the playing field. But again, I can't make a trade on that right now. But trust me, that's always in the back of my head. Great. Yeah, great observation, Dave. Um, as always, good to talk to you. Likewise, uh, let's, let's do the philosophical thing again. Absolutely. We've had some good ones on that. And I had similar with, with Ash on a few things uh, about a month or so ago. So you just never know where it goes when you skew a little bit away from trading because it's all related. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.